Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. I am this morning turning back to 2 Corinthians. We have been there for some months now. And chapter 10. So please turn with me in your Bible. Follow with me. Uh, we're going to look at the entire chapter. Verses 1 through to 18. Right, so it's Paul writing. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of the authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, these letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, his speech is of no account. Did such a person understand that what we say by letter when, when absent, we do when present? Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So just so far, uh, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, I am reminded and very conscious this morning of the need to resist the devil and to draw close to you. And Lord, doing this in the task of preaching, but Lord, also doing it as we live day by day, hour by hour, and just praying that even as we draw close to you in this word today, that you would enable us, Lord, to have open hearts, to receive from you, to be fed by you, to be nourished in soul, 
And Lord, even strengthened in mind as we go forward. And so committing ourselves this time to you now, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, chapter 10 does mark a new section in the book of 2 Corinthians. I'm sure you've noticed the heading in your Bible. Paul here is defending himself, defending his ministry uh, against some rather severe and sharp criticism that was coming, and notice this, it's coming from within the church. Now I find that interesting. One would expect the criticism to come from outside of the church. And so as I thought about it, it's not only Paul in the course of his ministry who was the object of severe criticism from within the church, but I remembered that John also, and again the Apostle John, encountered similar opposition. And I remind you, read in 3 John chapter 1 verse 9, as uh, the elder John The Apostle John writes to his friend Gaius, he says, I have written something to the church, then he identifies a person. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authorities. Not acknowledging apostolic authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. Dear friends, conflict in the church is not unexpected. It's a sadness, it's a tragic sadness, but it's a reality. Not only in Corinth, with some self-proclaimed apostles against the Apostle Paul, or Diotrephes against the Apostle John, but if you know anything about church history, you will know that down through the ages, Churches have had to face the difficulty, the hardship of criticism and conflict and division that is propagated within the church. And so I do ask the question this morning, how can this passage help us? How does this passage serve us? What is God leading us in as we follow this particular passage this morning? I have been mulling over the sermon for weeks. And finally, I believe God has led me to an understanding, a practical understanding that is helpful to us. The two steps, the two steps essential in what we are to do with this passage. Number one, step number one, not my outline yet, just still the introduction. Step one, like the Corinthians, we need to be convinced that Paul is an authentic apostle. That's the issue. In the passage, he's having to defend himself. That then will lead us to a second step. And that will be my second point later. If you are convinced that Paul is an authentic apostle, then as a believer, you're obligated to listen to every word that is written. And as we will see in this particular passage, the need to obediently submit to all that he has written. So the implication right up front in this message this morning for us is that if Paul's apostolic identity, if he's not an authentic apostle, it means that you ought to be honest enough to rip out of your Bible a whole bunch of books. 
Isn't that so? If he's not an apostle, why bother? That's the point. But, if Paul is an apostle, if Paul is an apostle, then all that he has written ought to be adhered to. That's really the message. We could close the Bible and go home now. But we're going to look at it some more detail. And so I do want to take the first step. And my first point, therefore, is, is Paul an authentic apostle? Sadly, the Christians in the church at Corinth were divided and confused. The confusion came about because they could not make up their minds about who they should believe. The big question facing them is, should they respect the Apostle Paul that planted the church, that came to them with the gospel? Should they submit to his teaching? Or should they shun him as a delinquent imposter and follow the newly arrived popular super-apostles? Paul calls them in the next chapter. These men who had crept into the congregation speaking a different message. So these Corinthians who at first had a high regard for Paul, uh, they had a tremendous respect for him, but that respect and trust over a period of time had been dismantled, it had been uh, affected, negatively affected by these new arrival uh, super apostles. And so, leading us to a sub-point of spreading false accusations about Paul. There are three major attacks, three major attacks mentioned in this uh, chapter. The first one is that accusing Paul that he is a coward. The chapter opens, and I'm sure you noticed, and, and, and the language is very difficult to, to disentangle, but I'm sure you noticed that in, in making this appeal to the church, Paul inserts a description, but he's echoing the, the criticism that was coming to him, about him, negatively from these uh, newly arrived super apostles. A belittling accusation, and he quotes in verse 1, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. What do they say? Hey Paul, you don't have the guts, you don't have the gumption to tell us the hard things face to face. Paul, you're weak and you're spineless. How can you be an apostle? A few verses later, again, referring to what these critics are saying about his alleged cowardice, him being timid uh, when he's with them and a big bully when he's away, verse 10, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. So what does that do? Well, the slanderous misrepresentation had the effect of planting seeds of doubt and suspicion in the minds of the Corinthian believers about Paul. Criticism number two. Paul is a worldly man. Now, I don't know if you know this, but one of the easiest ways to discredit someone is to attack their spirituality. And so that's what they do there. Uh, they do here. Paul's detractors, they dig into what I call their bag of tricks, and they accuse Paul of his behavior being governed by worldly standards. Verse 2. Some who suspect us, apostles, of walking according to the flesh. Now, what are they saying? They are saying that 
that, that the nature of his behavior, the nature of his ministry, is, is that he is operating according to the sinful nature. Uh, a sinful nature that is contrary to godliness, and it's more like the scheming deviousness of the devil. Criticism number three. Paul is boastful. Verse eight. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which is what they were saying, well, this is helpful to them. If they could make the accusation of pride stick on Paul, their mission to discredit him would be successful. Because everybody knows that pride is a terrible thing. I just picked up on two uh, verses uh, wisdom, wisdom literature, God speaking, revealing in Proverbs 8 verse 13, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. Or if we go to the New Testament, James in chapter 4 verse 6, God, think about this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So those are the accusations, it's cowardice, it's the flesh, carnality and pride. These are some of the accusations being leveled against Paul. If these allegations are true, then Paul is not an apostle. And so the Corinthians have to consider, and Central Baptists have to consider, do we believe the apostle was in fact indeed an apostle? They need to answer the question, is Paul an authentic apostle? So Paul had no option here but to respond to the allegations, and, and, and there's a reason. He has to respond to these allegations to rescue the Corinthians from being misled by false teachers. And so, the next point, launching a defense against false accusations. I wanted to take a step back there because there are times, I think it's true that at times we believers ought to turn the other cheek. Isn't that true? Sometimes it's best simply to be quiet. Leaving matters in God's hands because we know, we believe, Romans chapter 12, that uh, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So there are times, there are times when that kind of response applies. However, there are other times, as in this instance, where if the matter was left with the apostle discredited, there are consequences. Consequences not just for the apostle Paul, but consequences for the believing community. Because their faith would be undermined. It was very necessary for their spiritual well-being, for their understanding of truth, for Paul to clarify his appointment and his responsibility as an apostle. And so again, I go through the three uh, accusations. I first ask in the first instance, is Paul a coward? Well, I find it interesting here, uh, the way he responds, the way he begins his response. He could have stood on his authority, a God-given authority, that he was an apostle. But notice what he does. He makes an appeal to the Corinthians by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 
Why is he doing that? You see, these variations of mildness that they're accusing him of and and harshness that they observed in Paul, uh, which they see as timidity, is actually an attempt to emulate, to imitate the graciousness of Jesus. That's what he's doing. He wants to respond as we ought to respond in Christ-likeness. No, yes, he's a human being, as you and I are, 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 are human beings saved by the grace of God, and, and the imitation may be imperfect, but the point he's making is that his model of engagement with them is happening, and he wants it to happen in a way that would reflect the character of Christ. Now think about Jesus. Two examples. Jesus dealt gently, and honestly with the woman that he met at the well. And that's so. He was really very kind and compassionate, but honest. However, Jesus was not a pushover. He didn't let people just walk over him when it affected the honor and glory of his father. He firmly deals with the many changes in the temple. How does he do it? We had a lecture once at college where we debated this passage And he said, Jesus must have turned the tables over gently. Nonsense. He turned those tables over, demonstrating that this was sacrilege. The gentleness, but the firmness. The Christ-likeness. Letting them know in that particular instance that his father's house is a place of prayer. And so Paul is not a coward. He's not a coward. But he has the desire, when he's facing criticism, in the conduct of his response, to do so in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's a man whose desire it is to reflect the character of Jesus. Number two, is Paul a worldly man? Paul tackles this accusation of living by the standards of the world and and, I, and I'm going to read the, 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 the section. It's, it's from verse 3 onwards. For though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we have a body. We live in the world. We are not waging war according to the flesh. Is it a now? For the weapons, now he tells them his approach. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to, de- to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every evil of disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now here's the point, and here is a great lesson, I believe, for us also. Paul expands on the fact that he is an apostle, that we as believers use weapons, not of the flesh, but weapons that are supernatural. They are God-given, God-enabled. They're spiritual. Let's take the opposite. He is affirming, which we ought to affirm as well, our confidence, my confidence, your confidence, cannot be in self. It's not in himself. Not in human reason. Not in the power of argument or eloquence. Maybe sometimes we think Paul was this very dynamic kind of preacher. Do you remember Eutychus? 
Some of you are looking, you've never heard of Eutychus. Eutychus was subjected to Paul's preaching. And he was sitting on the windowsill of a building on a second or third floor. I don't know how many floors up. And Paul's preaching was so boring, he fell asleep dead. He fell asleep and he fell to the bottom and he died. Okay, so, so Paul was not the most eloquent and dynamic preacher. And that's the point he's making. It's, that's not the strength. The strength is in God. There, there is a supernatural working. The Spirit of God at work. Confidence is not in the resources of management, but simply in the supernatural power of God. goes on. Not only in terms of the use of supernatural resources, the power of God, but the believer has the task in dependence on God with powerful weapons to destroy strongholds. And I prayed that prayer this morning uh, before the sermon because in my own life, in fact, since Carol's passing, it has become even more relevant to me. Resist the devil, resist the devil, resist the devil. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Because there, there's a battle we're fighting. There's a kingdom of light and there's a kingdom of darkness. And, and, and Satan is seeking to destroy the church. He's seeking to destroy our faith. But we have the weapons to destroy the strongholds. They exist, verse 4. Sometimes visible, sometimes invisible, sometimes subtle. But, but behind the stronghold ultimately is Satan. Satan stands in support. Look around the world at the moment and you will see it. And he directs men and women in arguments, pretensions and justifications that oppose the true knowledge of God. He encourages deceptive Fantasies. Just to use the example at the moment in the world at the moment with uh, gender fluidity. I mean, that's lunacy. You're a man or a woman. I mean, somebody asked me yesterday, surely if I can claim I'm a woman when I'm a man, I can claim that I'm uh, of a certain culture. When I, it's, it's lunacy. But, but, but what's happening? Deceptive fantasies are being believed by the world because Satan is behind them. And it's not just deceptive fantasies, proud arguments. There's a huge uh, uh, raging uh, debate going on amongst evangelicals in the U.S. at the moment. And I've quoted this before, but it's once again reared its head. There's a huge church in Atlanta, Georgia, led by a pastor by the name of Andy Stanley. And, and Andy Stanley has this proud argument that to accommodate people uh, in the world that we're living in to receive the gospel, and, he, and I quote him, he says, we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Get rid of it, man. It gets in our way of reaching people. You see, where does that come from? It's a stronghold, stronghold, human pride. And Paul is arguing here. It is because of the irresistible power of God that these fortresses, these strongholds that Satan is constructing and building through people, through the kingdom of darkness. Now here's, the, here's an encouragement. Like the walls of Jericho will fall flat. Let me remind you of the walls of Jericho. Joshua chapter 6 verse 20. What happened? So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat without them lifting a finger. 
Do, that's the, the sense of the supernatural power of God doing that which humanly speaking is not feasible or possible. The power of God, dear friends, is such, and Paul is affirming this, that God is able to bring that once rebellious mind of individual people uh, into subjection, and we'll see this just now, to obey Christ. And I think if you're a believer yet today, you know that. There was a time when you resisted, when you dug your wheels in, and then what happened? Supernatural work of the Spirit of God in the life of men and women and children. You see, some of these Corinthians had wandered from the truth and they had drifted from the way of God. They were failing to submit to the mind of Christ. They were being deceived by the schemes of false apostles. And so it's not difficult if you take the scripture as the word of God, as authoritative, as given by the apostle, appointed by God, that you know what is right and what is wrong. And that's so. We, we don't have to be subjectively debating about what I think or you think. What does God think? That's the way we operate and must operate in our church. What does God say? What does God think? So Paul is not worldly. It's not a worthy man operating according to the standards of the world, unashamedly operating independence of God, making it clear to see even for us that our methods, our weapons are supernatural and not according to the ways of the world. Number three, is Paul boastful? Now this is a little bit tricky. In fact, for the next few chapters, he's going to refer on and off to the issue of boasting. But have a look at verse 8. Even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Now, why, why is he not ashamed? And, and, well, there's no need for him to be ashamed of this because he's not like those who bolster their position by empty boasting. So I had a look back at Acts chapter 9 where there's the record of uh, God speaking to Ananias about Paul. And what he says there, and I'll just quote some of the words, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine. And he has a task to do to carry my name to the Gentiles. And the point that Paul is making here is there's no need for him to be ashamed because God himself, the Lord himself, appointed him to the office of apostleship. And he has the authority of an apostle exercising that in accordance with that mandate. And notice the effect of the ministry. It is focused in the building up of the church and not the breaking down of the church. His leadership has not been destructive. What were the false apostles doing? They were dividing the church. They were splitting the church. They were breaking the church down. And so, yes, it is true that there is boasting that can be out of place. But we also need to recognize in this passage, and we're going to see this as we move on, there can be a valid type of boasting. And then he goes on in verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without 
understanding. So what's he saying here? He's saying that these super apostles, these self-appointed apostles, are setting up their own standards. It's what they think. It's their subjective standards of excellence. They think that in ministry they ought to be training in rhetoric, for example. They ought to be ecstatic experiences. They ought to be commendations. And then they judge themselves by the standards that they set. No, no desire to measure themselves by the objective standards. What are the objective standards? Well, it has to be surely what Jesus taught the apostles. It must be allegiance to the gospel. It must be allegiance or alignment, conformity to Christ's character. It must be even participation in Christ's suffering. And so he makes a statement. To claim apostolic authority by self-created criteria, he says, was to be without understanding. Loosely translated, stupid. Very stupid. And so for Paul, yes, there was a proper boasting. He speaks of a divinely given area of service as we move on to verse 13. We will not boast beyond limits, but we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even you. Yeah, God, God is at work. God has been at work in us, through us, and even among you. And then he goes on in verse 15, we do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. Again, what's he saying is, I'm going to confine my testimony, my, my report to the geography that God assigned to us. Remember, the apostle to the Gentiles. And Corinth was one of those places. He did pioneer evangelism and church planting. And he had an area of influence under God. And he rejoiced, as he writes in a previous letter, uh, when others built on his apostolic foundation. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds. What were the super apostles, the false apostles? They were not content to build on Paul's foundation. They boasted that any spiritual vitality in Corinth was due to their presence, their vitality, their work. Do you know Don Carson? He's a New Testament uh, commentator, theologian, and uh, he quotes on this verse, I think it's very accurate, he says, little men can be dangerous, especially when they position themselves in such a way that is to capture some stolen glory from great men. Why does he say that? Paul was the great man under God. He didn't raise his boasts on others' work. His boast was never in himself, but in the God-ordained sphere of his calling. In fact, the, the next words reveal the governing principle of proper boasting. Verse 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It is not the one who commends himself who is approved. Folk, it's not that one. The one whom the Lord commends. Does Paul have an inflated ego patting himself on the back and elevating himself as the indispensable hero? No. Is Paul a coward? No. He aspired to be Christ-like. Is Paul's methodology worldly? No. He does not resort to worldly methods. He instead uses the weapons that are supernatural. Is Paul boastful? No. He affirms in word and deed that he who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And so my point is this. I've got to the end of my first point. My second point is short. Alright? 
Is Paul an authentic apostle? Yes. Yes. That means that step one is complete. Now the implication. There is no need to rip half of the New Testament out your Bible. The book of Romans right through to the book of Philemon, by the way. You and I have this wonderful gift from God through the Apostle Paul, Scripture that is God-inspired. Every single word, every sentence, every line of Paul's letters to the churches, solid, reliable, useful for teaching, yes, oh yes, also for rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. So, let me ask you the question, how then does this passage help us? Well, we can take step two. Now I'm going to preach through every book of Paul's writing. You can, in fact my point, I've called it this, take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the implication. How do you know what to obey? I call this message knowing God's will. You can know God's will. You, you can with confidence know what God is directing you to do on every single matter raised by the Apostle Paul. Our problem, my problem, I confess, is to struggle to take every single thought and make it captive to Christ. Now let me run through all these books very quickly. Did you know that you can know a systematic doctrine, that you can know a summary of holy living by studying and reading the book of Romans. It is a systematic theology revealed to us from God. There is the wisdom of God in a catalogue of struggles that we believers face in the church, outside of the church, from the two letters written to the Corinthians. Let me give you some insight to some of the subjects, including hero worship. Oh, it's a big problem. Especially with uh, social media and internet, and there's this guru and that guru and, and that celebrity. No, we deal with that in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Christ is the one that we serve. Speaks about division and conflict and church discipline and spiritual gifts and submission to government. Those just to name a few. You can know absolute clarity regarding the gospel alone if you study the book of Galatians. In Ephesians, you you can know about every spiritual blessing in Christ, the miracle of conversion, the Christian life in the church, family. You know, to conduct yourself in your family as a husband and wife and as children, in the community. And there's even the bonus of insight into some detail about spiritual warfare. The life of joy in Christ in the book of Philippians. Paul tells the Colossian Christians that as members of a new humanity, a new society, no part of their human existence remains untouched by the loving and liberating rule of Jesus. The most prominent theme in 1 Thessalonians, when last did you read 1 Thessalonians? It's the second coming of Jesus. Gives us prospect, anticipation, gives us hope. It's mentioned in every chapter of that book. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul discusses persecution, the return of Jesus, the the, the need to remain hopeful and to be faithful, and he even addresses idleness amongst believers. How should we conduct ourselves in the church? 
commonly known as the pastoral epistles 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Everything you need to know about church and leadership and function given to us. And then Philemon, the last little book that Paul writes, deals with the themes of forgiveness. Now, now, folks, do you see my point this morning? Do you see how practical the scriptures are? In every letter, you will find also woven into the message, the gospel of Jesus, his life, his atoning work revealed, showing and inviting sinful men and women to repent and believe and have life. To constantly be growing, to be conforming into the likeness of Jesus. The point is this, everything you and I need to know about life and godliness on a platter. But you've got to read it. You've got to do it. Paul is an authentic apostle. You and I can confidently believe all that God has given in his letters that has been preserved for us in the New Testament. Wow! What a gift! And so Lord, I pray that we would not neglect this gift that you have given us to trust you with great courage, thanking you too for the faith that you give, your spirit enabling and leading us day by day. And once again, Lord, just praying that you would help us to navigate our lives through the many difficulties, the hardships, as we face, Lord, the struggle of kingdom of light and kingdom of darkness, contending as it were against each other. But thank you for the victory that has been won and achieved through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.